Oh, Austin, do you know what holiday is coming up? Hanukkah? Close enough, I guess. In honor of this being in our Christmas episode, a song for the audience. They're singing Deck the Halls. Not like Christmas at all. I remember when you were here. And all the fun we had last year. Bomb Squad! Oh, Bomb Squad! Oh, Movie Night! Oh, catch me if you can. Hi! Welcome to Bomb Squad Movie Night, episode 97. Seven. Seven. <laughs> 97. On, um,. What might very well might be my uh, favorite Steven Spielberg movie. Catch me if you can. I'll make them chase me for the rest of their lives. And uh, once again, for the first time since I believe Top Gun Maverick, it is just the Tanner and Austin show. How do we feel about that one, Austin? I'm feeling great. We're talking about a really good movie today, Tanner. It's true, we are. And I guess everyone else hates Christmas because they're not here. Hi, I'm Robert Philip Hansen. Dear Robert Hansen, and I'm Tanner Richard Kraft. We're talking about Catch Me If You Can, but as our warm-up question, we're uh, gonna talk about what's our favorite movie about a con man? Or as Austin requested, a heist. A con man heist movie of proportions, go. You know what, Tanner? Uh, This is shameful proof that I was indeed a film production major instead of a film studies major. Uh, Did you know that con man movies are like a really limited, tiny genre? So tiny that on lists like the greatest 15 con man movies of all time, sometimes Now You See Me actually makes the cut. But why? Because there's so few of them. I've seen so few of these, man. From what I've read so far, The Sting, the 1973 movie with Paul Newman, is like the cream of the crop. But I've never seen that shit. Apparently, con man movies are a slight blind spot of mine, along with, like, lots of musicals and sports movies in general. So, at best, I've got some honorable mentions. Because I don't have a broad enough survey to say my definitive favorite. One really cool con man movie is F for Fake, which is partially about an art for man named Elmer DeHory who sold 50 million dollars worth of fake paintings when you adjust it for inflation. The important distinction to make when you're talking about the genuine quality of a painting is not so much whether it's a real painting or a fake. It's whether it's a good fake or a bad fake. It's easy to recommend that for fake because it's super fast paced for a movie from 1973 and it's the last great film that Orson Welles made. But recently I rewatched this movie about some much more small-time bank robbers, and I just want to take a second to remind people that this exists. Hell or High Water by Taylor Sheridan is another expertly made film about people with really good motives kicking the banking system where it hurts. If you saw it back in 2016 and you, like, never plan to revisit it, I'd actually say boot up Netflix and give that son of a bitch another go. Actually, you alright? Good morning. From start to finish, it's a really compelling story about two brothers who love each other and want to help their family escape from poverty once and for all. But yeah, uh, I've got a lot of con man movies to watch. Let me know in the comments if you got any ideas. Back to you, Tanner. You know what else Hell or High Water has, my friend? What's that? One of the characters is named Tanner. We got him. Got him! We got him. Oh! I do think it's the non-Chris Pine brother, though. Oh, 
You, you play the coolest guy in the movie. You play Lord of the Plains! Lord of the Plains. It's hard to say that not in Death Grip's voice. Lord of the Plains. So I'm trying to think off the top of my head, what are some good con man movies? Uh, Matchstick Man is technically a con man movie. Hell yeah. Have you seen Matchstick Man, Austin? No, I have not. <laughs> That's okay. It's a good movie. I like it a lot. Hey, buddy. Ever heard of a lie? Hey, have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beat until you pissed blood? <laughs> Ocean's 13? Oh, no, sorry. Ocean's 11. Ocean's 13. <laughs> I never movies. took you for a big Ocean's 13 fan, Austin. <laughs> Ocean's 11, though. I mean, it, it's, it's lightning. It is a good one. <laughs> this place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. Here's a movie about con people. The, the movie that introduced the world to Will Smith and Margot Robbie as a together. Focus from 2015 or something. I saw that in theaters. I think it was me and my friend were the only people in the theaters. Yeah. I think we were the only people to m give that movie any money in the theater, but it is a con man movie and it is okay. Just fine. What does a guy like that do with that kind of money? Yeah, financed his own line of gravies. I always heard the Brothers Bloom. Have you ever seen the Brothers Bloom? I've seen the Brothers Brigsby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a no on that one. I love you, Philip Morris. I love you, Philip Morris is good. That's a really nice pull. I almost forgot about that Does movie. that count? Yeah, that counts. I guess it counts. Yeah, he pulls cons. He, he escapes from prison by pretending to have AIDS. Okay, I googled con man movies, and some of these things are stretches. Right. Opportunity knocks, I guess. White men can't jump. What? I don't get that one at all. Stanley Kubrick loves that movie, though, so... Is, is The Killing a con man movie, speaking of Kubrick? Because The Killing is a great film. Yeah, yeah, you can count that. Uh, that's, that's my new answer. The black and white movie where the big guy beats up a bunch of cops. Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Killing. I changed my answer to A Fish Called Wanda because this list says it counts. And A Fish Called Wanda is great. Watch A Fish Called Wanda. Great movie. Okay, 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 okay. Don't get excited. Don't get excited. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, it's you. I was actually worried there for a minute. Keep your hands up. No! <laughs> In actuality, though, guys, the correct answer to what's your favorite con man movie is actually the movie we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. Catch me if you can. Oh, good, you're doing the, the stupid poster thing. <laughs> I'm a DreamWorks movie. Yeah, it looks like a rom-com or like a sitcom or something where it's like, he's a little shithead. He's her father. They're gonna fuck. Speaking of DreamWorks, we're doing Catch Me If You Can, which is a DreamWorks movie. Just oh, as it much is a DreamWorks movie. How to Train Your Dragon is a DreamWorks movie. It's true. Uh, that new DreamWorks logo should have had Leonardo DiCaprio just booking it in a pilot's uniform. <laughs> I fucking, I love this movie. I, is this the first time we've gotten to talk about Spielberg on here? It is the second time we've talked about Spielberg on here. One of our first episodes was on Raiders. Oh, you're right. But our first time talking about Spielberg in a non-action context. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is definitely, a, I'm assuming, a big box office player because almost everything Spielberg touches turns to gold, mm -hmm. especially at the turn of the century. But this is not necessarily a blockbuster. It has a lot of big leads. It's a very fun movie, but there's no action scenes per se. But Austin, what do you, what do you think of Catch Me If You Can? You know... A while ago, we got to tell the audience this. We had that funny moment 
where I was the first person you met who correctly guessed that this was your favorite <laughs> Steven Spielberg movie on the first try. Nobody ever guesses this one. Not even on the first try, just period. They don't guess. Catch me if you can. Ever since then, dude, I've been trying to figure out how my stupid idiot brain arrived at that guess. And I've drawn up some <laughs> theories, if you will indulge me. Oh, absolutely. For starters, I think Spielberg in the 2000s was still at the top of his game, probably until about when Crystal Skull came out. Then he started making these movies that felt a little bit more self-indulgent or like really high caliber Oscar bait that narrowly misses the magic mark. Then recently he got right back up on top of the mountain with fucking West Side Story and the Fablemans back to back. But all this is to say like, Steven Spielberg, he only gets stronger with age. His crew of regulars, the filmmaking tech at his disposal, basically every advancement before the like 2010s digital footage CGI tornado thing only made Spielberg movies cooler to watch. Catch Me If You Can was part of the Janice Kaminsky, Michael Kahn era of Steven Spielberg's career that began all the way back with Schindler's List. It's his seventh movie with his, like, crack team of level 100 movie-making dudes. And easily his most fun, lighthearted movie since probably Hook back in 1991. So if I had to reduce this to, like, a graph, I would say Catch Me If You Can is the most cheerful movie Spielberg made the farthest along his technical climb to the top. Drop it! Relax. You're late. My name is Alan, Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has him in custody. I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, there's other huge factors that make this movie stand out. Having Christopher Walken and Tom Hanks as father figures? Are you kidding me? Or the fact that this movie takes you back to a time where there were like no cell phones, no digital computers. So you get to see these like crazy schemes that used to cause real damage, but they're significantly easier to follow for the audience because things used to be simpler. Like you get these moments where it's like, yeah, of course you should fold your fake doctor's note. Duh, that's so smart. Oh, taking the, the sticker off a toy airplane to use to make a fake check. Genius, I'm following all of this. I also want to say Catch Me If You Can depicts one of America's wackiest traditions. That tradition being, if you're the best at doing a complicated crime, the feds usually parole you after you get caught and have you come work for the good guys. Like another good example of this is Kevin Mitnick. That guy stole code from Sun Microsystems, Nokia, Motorola, cost those companies 300 million fucking dollars. And now he's a consultant with an estimated net worth of 20 million dollars. This happens frequently, and every time it happens, it's funny. Except when we did it with Nazis. Operation Paperclip was not funny. But in the case of Frank Abagnale Jr., not only is it funny, but it's also super heartwarming. This is possibly the most money two poor people divorcing has ever cost the federal government. <laughs> this man stole millions of dollars because his parents split up. Speaking for myself and Spielberg, both children of divorce, it's like a fucked up superhero movie. Yeah, this guy really made the whole world sorry his parents split up. What a boss. Winding this answer down, I want to just apologize to the viewers for two things. Sorry we don't have a 4K copy of this for you to get visuals from. Some of Spielberg's best movies are still unavailable at this resolution, including Minority Report somehow. Also, sorry I'm not coming in with a barrage of, like, funny production trivia. The special features on the DVD were basically just 
people talking about how cool Frank Abagnale is for 90 minutes. Spielberg didn't even do a commentary track because he's too cool for that shit. But the fact of the matter is, this movie was made in a blitz by a fine-tuned machine of professional badasses to the tune of, get this, 147 locations in 52 days. Wow. Unless you want to talk about the difference between fact and fiction or visible contents of the movie itself, you're mostly shit out of luck. Fortunately, on the surface, this movie is a stone cold classic, even if I don't have a bunch of fun like how they made it stuff for movie night. It's an incredible movie start to finish, certainly a unique highlight in Spielberg's legendary filmography. Back to you, Tanner. See, it's funny you talk about how um, the bonus features are mostly everyone being like, Frank McNeil is so fucking cool, man. And shit because of, uh, well, it came out a few years ago that 99% of the things that Frank McNeil has claimed he's done, he has not done. Garbage. Just false. Like, for example, he claims he was only arrested in France, as depicted in the movie. That was the one time he got arrested. He was arrested several times in Georgia, New York, Louisiana... The pilot thing is probably true. There's not that much evidence supporting the doctor and the lawyer thing. He, there's a picture of him when he was posing as a doctor. So he at least put the okay, costume on. Okay, then maybe on. that's legit. And the biggest thing is the FBI refuses to confirm or deny if he ever actually worked for them. Hmm. They don't deny it, but they won't confirm it either. Yeah. And why that's interesting is because there's a chance he may have never worked for the FBI. What is true, however, is that he claimed he did all these things and then started a securities company with it. Ah, that's a good pitch. And consulted people, hire me. I'm the guy that ripped you off all those years ago. And they're like, oh, it was the 60s. It was probably $7. That was a lot of money back then. This guy knows what he's doing. I think the real figure was closer to $2 million than what this movie says, which is like $4 million. Yeah, four-something million. I love the moment where, like, it's interrogating the mom. The mom. And the mom's like, all right you a check how much for it and he just kind of opens the door after leaving uh, at this point about it looks like uh, one and a half million dollars <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fucking classic I mean oh, no. if she worked part time at like one of those mega churches who's, who's that one guy Jim Baker if she worked at Jim Baker's church she could have written that check yeah, <laughs> Tammy Faye, I need some help. <laughs> um, this is when Spielberg was getting into a more lighthearted streak of films, because his movie before this was Minority Report, because it came out the same year as Minority Report. So he was getting in a more fun era, turning it down from the Schindler's Lists and the Saving Private Ryan's, as was shown by the fact that his next movie is The Terminal, which is Tom Hanks doing a goofy-ass accent for two hours while Stanley Tucci chases them around at an airport, <laughs> and it's it's more well-made than, uh, than most blockbusters today. Um, they don't make them like the terminal anymore. Arrest him! Arrest him! God! They don't make them like Catch Me If You Can anymore either. This movie has it all. It has two of my favorite actors, my all-time favorite actor in Tom Hanks, and a very fun supporting role playing arguably the antagonist, which he does not often do in his career. A protagonist in antagonist clothes. I think the only other time he outright played a villain was... Elvis? What was that stupid tech... I guess Elvis, he outright plays the villain in that, but before that, it's, I think, the the Circle or something, that weird, like, movie where he plays a tech CEO, I think. I never saw that, and I never met anyone who saw that. Uh, Christopher Walken's in this movie. Leo is another one of my favorite actors. And they're all giving favorite performances. This might be my favorite performance in Leo's career, as it hits this sweet spot where he's still a boyish little boy, but he isn't quite Jack Nicholson melted face yet. I, I'll, I did these Jack Nicholson I'm... <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird sweet spot where he still has the youth, but sort of this um, weatheredness about him. It's a sweet spot in this queer, and he only made like two or three movies in this sweet spot. It's this, Gangs of New York, and a third movie. 
Aviator? Aviator is maybe the beginning of Melted Face Leo, but it's, uh, oh, Blood Diamond. <laughs> I think it looks kind of old in Blood Diamond. Maybe it's just these two then. <laughs> <laughs> and it's honestly, I think, the best performance of Leo's career. There are the moments where he plays the, the conniving little shit that is defrauding everyone, and he's really shitty to some people. But then he'll just snap right back to, this is just some kid. Like the scene at the engagement party where he realizes oh. he needs to book it. Yeah. Is, is very depressing. Because, like, he he loves Amy Adams. He truly does. You don't expect with a movie with this tone to have a, a daughter who was disowned by her, like, what, Lutheran parents for having an abortion? Like, he was important in her life and getting her life back on track, and it was all a facade. Yeah, the abortion shit also, like, comes out of left field. Because this movie's very lighthearted. Um, John Williams, on the DVD special features, describes this as a bonbon, and Spielberg continuously describes it as a dessert movie. You know what? That's valid. It totally is. Speaking of Amy Adams and Leo, what is so funny is when they're making out for the first time after she gets her braces off, and then they're like, Dr. Connors to the ER, Dr. Connors to the ER, and he goes there, and then the line everyone quotes in this movie. Dr. Harris. Yes? Do you concur? Concur with what, sir? Do you concur? Uh, well, there's a bicycle accident. So you concur? Okay. I think we should take an x-ray, then stitch him up and put him in a walking cast. Carry on. Blew it, didn't I? Why didn't I concur? I should have concurred. Why didn't I concur? <laughs> I, I noticed, speaking of him and Amy Adams getting freaky, every time that Frank Abagnale has sex in this movie, he makes a mess. I do love the Jennifer Gardner cameo in this movie, though. That's they great. shot that in one day at, I think, wow. the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, the place where Robert Kennedy was shot. Oh, it, cool. So Frank Abagnale did it, is what you're saying. Yeah. Frank Abagnale killed Robert Kennedy. He was pretending to be Searhan Searhan, and then when they had him arrested, he was in the back of the Fed limo, and he's like, guys, hold on, I'm one of you. <laughs> Just They took him to a McDonald's, and he went on this way. Yeah, uh, we killed another Kennedy, boys. <laughs> yeah. I'll show them for saying they're going to shatter the FBI. You just love Leo's character because, yeah, he's a little shit that's defrauding so many people in unethical ways. But then it's like, I miss my mom and my pa. Or like every time he has a scene with his dad and his dad's life is continuously getting worse. You worried? About me? No, I'm not. Two mice fell in a bucket of cream, Frank. Which one am I? Frank, your father is dead. But something I really love about this movie is that it's so hardcore either from Hanratty's perspective or Frank's perspective. Because all we know is that his father is in some tax trouble. It's never really elaborated what he did. But the reason why is because it's hard-coded from Frank's perspective. Why would he know? Right. As far as he knows, his dad just wakes him up one day like, Hey, kid, get the fuck up. You're not going to school. It has that tragic element where uh, the first thing Frank tries to do when he gets some success as a pilot is give his dad a new car. And his dad's like, oh, I took the train here. I'm taking the train home. If the IRS saw me driving a new car, they'd have a shit fit. And then the way he dies, according to Tom Hanks, is tripping and breaking his neck while trying to catch a train, which is so That's something sad. I noticed this time, how he was trying to catch a train and that's how he died. And you go, oh, but he wanted to give him a car. Right. Fuck. 
another thing on this rewatch I, I thought I saw was, you know when the, he meets the divorce attorney in the house? He thinks it's just another guy's mother is sleeping with, and then the divorce attorney is like, calm down, I'm a divorce attorney. I think that's where he learned the, the like, I'm a secret agent trick. Because he found out that you can, like, somebody really hostile could be in your house, and you could just be like, wait, 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 I'm, I'm an official guy, and then they calm down. I'm supposed to be here. As long as they're in a suit and they see they belong there. But that's another thing. From Frank's perspective, the divorce seemingly comes out of fucking nowhere. Like, yeah, there seems to be some clear marital troubles, but then just next thing you know is boop. Now, what's interesting is this time, after watching The Fablemans, I've realized that Spielberg has a complicated relationship with both of his parents, which has put a new coloring on every time parents appear in one of his movies. Oh, God. And I keep trying to figure out who does the movie blame more in the divorce, the mom or the dad, and I can't quite figure it out. I would say, if you're going by, like, what, 2002 brain, 2001 brain when this came out, this absolutely blames the mom. Because uh, yeah. the, the mom, like, sleeps with his boss and, and, and has a kid with his boss. Like, it's framed in a really bad way for the mom. And you get that, like, scene of Chris walking, getting all emotional. Ad-lib, by the way, where he's, you know, like, crying over losing his wife. It's like, I'd say this movie is much more sympathetic to the father, uh, even though the father is probably the reason for, you know, the financial trouble that caused the divorce. Right. But what I was thinking about this time is that, yeah, that would be what you would typically think. However, I was thinking about it this time. I don't think the movie thinks what Frank's doing is good. Like, the whole thievery and everything. It's not a good thing what he's doing. He is defrauding people. But he's just kind of aping his father. Yeah, he really wanted to make that thing about the Yankees true. You know why the Yankees always win, Frank? Because they have Mickey Man? No. It's because the other teams can't stop staring at those damn pinstripes. He wanted he wanted to be on the Yankees, metaphorically. I think the movie's pretty sympathetic towards Frank because there's this line Tom Hanks has where he's like, I never said your son was a criminal, I said he was in trouble. Which is really how Tom Hanks feels, his character, throughout the movie. Yeah, at first he's like, oh, I'm gonna get this shithead, but once he, like, really processes what this kid's going through, he kind of goes, oh, fuck. It's just a child. This child is scared and confused. I have child. I really do love Carl Hanratty, Tom Hanks, and this character. This is one of my favorite Hanks supporting performances. And uh, since he is a father figure, uh, Tom Hanks, for the first time, has gotten a uh, Dad's Rock Baby! First one in a while. What a guy. This is the ideal FBI agent to have hunting you down. I absolutely love how, like, each of the attempted arrest scenes go between the two of them. Like, the first one, he gets tricked by him, and he gets pissed off, and then by the last one in France, the, Tom is like, Frank, please, I am trying to help you. They're going to kill you. And I love how when Frank and Carl first walk out, Frank's like, that was a good one, Carl, because there's no one out there. And then immediately the 20 fucking cops show up. The French police roll up, ready to do some brutality. There is so, so much to this movie. It's really fun. I love the score. This is one of my favorite William Spielberg collaborations. It's fun and jazzy. It's their 20th movie together. And The Fablemans was their last. Rest in peace. To a legend. R rest in peace, Sammy Fableman. I love how kid-like Leo is. When he's trying to propose to Martin Sheen for Martin Sheen's hand in marriage, he's like, I'm just a kid. I don't know anything. The truth is that I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an airline pilot. I'm nothing, really. I'm just a kid who's in love with your daughter. No. You know what you are. You're a romantic. <laughs> Go ahead, Frank. 
Yeah, I love that he just tells the truth. But because it sounds like a metaphor, Martin Sheen's like, oh. I love how intimidating Martin Sheen is until, like, he says that. Because the entire time you think Martin Sheen's seen through him. Uh-huh. And then he says then that line. And then you're like, oh, okay. Thank God. We're going to take a quick ad break and then transition to some general discussion. Bye. Bye. Extradition between France and the United States is a bureaucratic nightmare, you know that? I think they might find a way to make it work in your case. Don't worry, Frank. I'll have you extradited back to the United States. Don't worry. Welcome back from the ad break for another ad. Do you like color, movie, and wood? Then boy, do I have a deal for you. MoviePalette.com. You've probably seen an Instagram ad for it. Go on down to MoviePalette.com and you can see a variety of these special little movie palettes that are essentially every primary color of every frame in a movie, sliced into these little lines, thrown up onto a board in order, and then it's a nice little art piece. And there's plenty of selections from the website. You can see mine one right here from Punch Drunk Love. And you can go on and get your own of this, of the movie we're covering, or maybe an anything else by going to moviepilot.com and if you buy something on that website enter the code squad 15 for a 15 percent discount on any product you buy you won't regret it and we're back austin what's up you ready for this general discussion i'm so ready i have so many things to discuss generally about this movie oh lord he discussing generally what's your favorite scene in this movie because mine is probably the uh, joke tom hanks tells in the car i love the greatest knock knock joke of all time Knock, knock. Who's there? Go fuck yourselves. Hard to say. Right. I kind of love Leo realizing that Amy Adams has given him up, and then his his response is to disguise himself as a pilot again, and also defraud a college, probably totally screw over those nine girls in order to use them as bait, essentially, as a distraction as they walk out. And what I really love is the scene where Tom Hanks gets on the phone in that scene, that shot of him getting on the phone and he's talking to them. It's like, we got him. We think he's in the driveway. In the background of that shot, out of focus, you see Leo and the nine stewardess just walking past. But that also leads to the question, did those nine stewardess get on a plane with him? And if so, how did they get... Who got them home? Did the federal government have to foot that bill? Another good Tom Hanks quote around that scene is when they're like, how do you know he's not just going to drive to an airport in, like, New York or something? And he's like, because I'm not in New York. Well, how do you know he hasn't rented a car and driven to airports in New York, Atlanta? Because I'm not in New York. I'm not in Atlanta. And the thing is, is he's right. At this point, I think they both realize it's kind of a cat and mouse game for each other. Yeah, there's an added dimension beyond just wanting to get away with crime. According to American Cinematographer, there were two films that Janice Kaminsky watched to help figure out the look for this. There were these two documentaries, High School from 1968 and Salesman from 1969. I've never heard of those films in my fucking life. I'm the guy this week who's going to fuck me over in editing later. Take that. (laughs) Because this was shot so quickly, Leo had the flu for like half of shooting. Oh my god, that explains why he looks like shit. Maybe that's why he looks like shit in the opening scene. Yeah, they were like, let's use it. Like the day he got the flu, they been putting a fake beard on him. Like, come on, use it. I do love the way this movie opens with the little dating game thing. Or not dating game. Tell the truth. It's not a dating game. Tell the truth, which is based off of a real episode of Tell the Truth. The entire episode's on YouTube, I believe, of uh, Frank Abagnale. Apparently nobody in that show guessed who he was. And even funnier than that, they guessed the two people sitting around him. And uh, the guy on the left of him was a Catholic priest who's also a school principal. And then the guy on the right of him worked in law enforcement selling lie detectors. These two people were mistaken for 
Frank Abagnale while Frank Abagnale sat there smiling. You bet Frank Abagnale was like, hell yeah. <laughs> the sweetest of irony. You know, speaking of the real Frank Abagnale, like most movies based off of real people, he does have a cameo in this movie. Do you know where it is? He's the cop who arrests Frank Abagnale. Yeah, the French cop, to be specific. Very funny. I wonder if Frank Abagnale Jr. in that moment thought, oh, so this is how it would have gone if it actually happened. <laughs> this is what it would have felt like if my real life story was cool. You know what's funny? At the end of the movie, they list all the things that these, like, you know, movies based off of true stories do. At one point, it says Frank and Carl remain friends until this day. That's a lie because Carl isn't a real person. Carl is a made-up name. I think it's just supposed to represent the FBI agent's real name was Joseph Gerald Shea. Uh, I heard a rumor that Tom Hanks came up with the name Carl Hanratty, uh, but Joseph Gerald Shea, I think, died in 2005, and he was supposedly still friends with Frank Abagnale. Yeah, that I would believe. It's just funny that it says Carl, considering it's not even the pseudonym used in the book, Sean O'Reilly. Right. It's just a whole new name. And according to Frank Abagnale, apparently Hanks got the mate, Shay, and apparently watching Hanks is virtually identical to watching Shay. Tom knocked it out of the park with his Jimmy Stewart bullshit. Yeah, come on, Carl. This guy's a pen and ink man. A goddamn paper hanger. He doesn't even carry it. I can't go with you, Carl. You just keep your eyes open, do your job, and buy both a good humor bar. One thing that's crazy about this movie and really signals it's a Spielberg movie, even though it was made faster than, like, any other Spielberg movie, is there's these few crazy shots where it's like, oh, yeah, only only a big dog could have done that. Like, there's this shot where they're on the exterior of an apartment, and you can see all these people in the windows, and Leo's up there, like, forging checks. They needed a 60-foot crane and a Westcam XR remote head to get that fucking shot. Also, the shot of him in the fucking movie theater, dude, where he's watching James Bond, and that shit zooms over the whole movie theater. Like, like, there are some Spielberg-ass shots in this thing that they had to get really quickly. Uh, you know what's something funny you know, I noticed about this movie? All the surfaces are wet. Yeah, they, they sprayed down the roads like photographers like to do. Even when it was sunny, they would spray the roads down because it just looked better. They opened the command console and turned on reflections. <laughs> Uh, shout out to Mary Zoffries, the costume designer. She mostly did work with the Coen brothers before this and now works with Spielberg a lot. Uh, you might know her because she got nominated for the, the best costume design Oscar for like True Grit, then La La Land, then The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I think she said that Leo has like a hundred wardrobe changes in this movie. It's nuts. That's a lot. So Leo had this really funny habit on set where he'd watch his takes on the monitor with Spielberg. Nothing unusual there. But then after they got a few that Leo and Spielberg approved of, Leo would always ask for them to do one last extra take. This was kind of like a fuck it take where he would get experimental, throw caution to the wind because they already had good stuff. According to Spielberg, these so-called like fuck it takes were so good that they were used in the final movie 80% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so the I'm just going to get weird with it shit is mostly what's in here, huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that maybe that's why this is what I think is Leo's best movie because there is like a lot of it where like there's these weird acting choices being made, but they all kind of make sense. It's an interesting thing to give an actor, like, oh, if this take fails, we've got something perfect already, so just be inventive with it. It's, it's like, that's got to give you a lot of security. It, it's kind of silly. Spielberg wasn't sure he wanted to do this movie until he got his wife, daughter, and family friends to do a script read privately. And then after that script read with his family friends, he was just like, hell yeah, now I'll do it. So in the words of Vin Diesel, I got family. This movie was in production for like 40 years. They first bought the rights to make a movie in like 1980. Right. 
David Fincher was the first director attached. Only a few months was he ever attached, but he dropped out in, in favor of doing Panic Room. Weird call, David. I mean, that's more your style, but I'm gonna be honest. Weird fucking call. Milos Foreman was attached. Like, they got some good dudes. And then I believe the last director attached before Spielberg took over was uh, Gore Verbinski. Pirates of the Caribbean guy, right? Also the yeah, Rain Pirates remake. of the Caribbean guy. Very talented director who can do movies like this. But at this point, he hadn't even done Pirates yet. At this point, his most well-known thing, I think, would have been the Ring remake. Oof. In which case, why do they go with Gore Verbinski to direct this movie? Hot off the Ring remake. Catch me if you can! <laughs> Very different movie. You got Leo DiCaprio getting a phone call, you will die in seven days. And he's like, actually, no, I won't. He puts on a fucking air, air pilot hat. It's just him trying to escape the ring girl. Oh, also Cameron Crowe was asked to direct this at some point, but apparently turned it down. He's good. I think he did that almost famous worked. by this point. Cameron Crowe would have worked. He almost famous as 2000, I think, so. Did he do Jerry Maguire or am I fucked up? I think he did do Jerry Maguire, so he would have been an excellent choice. Yeah. I will say, though, what's really funny is that apparently Gore Verbinski, the reason why he had to drop out of the project is because he had to push production back because Leonardo DiCaprio reshot scenes for Gangs of New York, and the delay of the movie led the original actor for Carl Hanratty to drop out. Do you know who was playing Carl Hanratty originally? Was it a big Italian guy who likes Gabagool? It was a big Italian guy that likes Gabagool. It was James Gandolfini. No. And the production being pushed back by a few months meant that he had to go and shoot The Sopranos next season so he couldn't partake in the movie anymore. I'll tell you what it is. It's anti-Italian discrimination. Spielberg got really lucky with this. Like, I think the only reason he was able to get Martin Sheen was because one of the producers on The West Wing made time for him to be on. But I can't imagine James Gandolfini as Carl Hanratty because when he would be, like, chasing Leo, it would be too scary. Tom Hanks yeah. is way less imposing. <laughs> Like, it doesn't really work because it would, uh, I would feel like James Gandolfini's Carol Hanratty would be like, I will shoot him <laughs> if I have to. What's really crazy is when this movie first entered production in 81, apparently who the producers wanted for the role was Dustin Hoffman, which in 1981 would have been, I guess, young enough. That's pre-Tootsie, right? But he looked old in The Graduate. Like, he's kind of... A, yeah, but, and he's supposed to be young in that movie, and he still looks old. But to be fair, Frank Abagnale has this physical characteristic that helped him do all this. He looked older for his age, which made the casting of Leo really funny, because Leo looks younger for his age. Well, apparently Spielberg, his first choice wasn't Leo. Oh, who was it? Johnny Depp. Much worse movie. Significantly worse movie. I don't think Johnny Depp has the emotional gravitas. Like, you watch him freaking out and having a bad time in Donnie Brasco, it's not nearly as sympathetic as when Leo freaks out. When he freaks out, it resembles a toddler having a meltdown because they couldn't get the cookie. Right. As opposed to Leo having a meltdown, which is, oh, he's just a kid. His dad's dead. Well, this sucks. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad they didn't go with Depp. And also, at this point, Johnny Depp, I think, is already in his 30s. So the scenes of him in high school would have played very funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm your substitute teacher. Well, he looks older than everyone here. Grey's Anatomy Girl. Ellen Pompeo has a cameo as the first stewardess that he sees. Also, Chloe Savengi, however you pronounce her name, would have been the Amy Adams character. Chloe Savani. It's true. Okay, this Amy Adams with braces in this movie is scary to me. Yeah. Like, she looks like an alien. <laughs> she looks 
super young. It, it, it exudes that kind of like, oh, you're a freshman in high school level young. It's scary. But then when she takes the braces off, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a woman in her 20s. Yep. Very instant. <laughs> braces young people up. Who knew? All right. You ready for final thoughts, Austin? Yeah, I'm ready for final thoughts. Okay, good. Because I got, I got places to be. <laughs> I'm not on the run or anything, though. Don't worry. Final thoughts, Austin. Go. There were two mice that fell in a bucket of cream. The first mouse, he drowned. But the second mouse, he kept doing location changes and casting a Lestactus until he churned the cream into butter. That mouse made $352 million. Catch me if you can, is that second mouse. And that first mouse's name? The Terminal. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably my favorite Spielberg movie. The answer honestly changes depending on when you ask me, but this is usually my most common answer. Uh, the Fablemans may be a new contender in that regard, though. We'll Stay do that tuned. one in February. Stop, stop, stop it! What? You never saw nobody grieving before? But this is a classic movie. It's a classic, classic movie. It's funny. It's fun. It's heartwarming. It's a tearjerker at times. It features probably my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance. It's another great Tom Hanks performance. It's a Spielberg classic. There are, like, single shots that are absolutely insane that only Spielberg would do for a single shot. You know who else goes nuts for just a single shot? No! You! The person watching slash listening to this edition of Bomb Squad Movie Night on Catch Me If You Can. They'll never catch me alive, uh, the feds and everything. But if you're listening to this on any of the audio platforms, Ron, thank you oh so very much for listening. Uh, go on down and go to below and leave a review. It boosts us in the algorithm. Probably not. Boost my ego, though. Yeah. And if you're watching this on Spotify video, I don't think we actually curse that much. Fair point. I hope you enjoyed it uncensored anyway. If you're watching it on Spotify video, since we can't monetize Spotify video, but our YouTube's monetized, how about you mosey on down to our Patreon? Throw some beans so we can make more beans. <laughs> I'm thinking about those beans. I'm always thinking about them beans. And if you are watching on YouTube, thank you oh so very much for watching. Come on down to the comment section below and let me know. What do you think of uh, Catch Me If You Can? What's your favorite Spielberg movie? What's your favorite Leo performance? What's your favorite Tom Hanks performance? Do you think this movie's good? Do you think this movie should have been more depressing? Do you think Johnny Depp would have been good? And finally, can you catch me? No, they can't. Damn straight. Comment below and let us know. And while you're down there, hit the like button so we know how much you like us. Hit the subscribe button so we know how much you love us. And hit the bell icon so you can know exactly when we upload new videos. Tune in next week for a very, very... Mr. Kraft, oh, put your hands up. Shit. What the fuck? Oh, fuck. What's that? Tanner, why is there a guy with a gun? Jesus fucking Christ.